Hello and welcome to Iroquois History and Legends. I'm Andrew. And I'm Caleb. And uh, sorry for the long delay since our last episode. You may remember that Andrew just had a small little girl several months ago, and now my wife and I have just given birth to a small little boy. So I now have two boys under two, and Andrew has two boys and a girl under four. So uh, a lot of little cotter babies running around these days. But welcome to episode 33, Kayasuta and Pontiac's War. If you recall, in our last episode, the British are finally able to become masters of North America because they make all these deals and treaties with the indigenous peoples to shore up their western flank, and therefore they're able to attack Canada, totally driving the French out. And now British people and indigenous Native Americans can live in peace forever, just like they promised. And uh, they did drive the French leadership out, but many of the French-Canadian civilians were able to stay. And we're not just talking up in Canada. There was actually still a lot of them out in the Ohio country. If you remember, Caleb, the whole reason this war kind of got kicked off was because British people were looking to the Ohio River country to try and settle new people there and get huge land-holding companies to divvy up the land. And now that the war is over, the poorest of the poor people that are looking for a chance at a new life, they don't really have anything and there's extremely cheap land to the west because, again, nobody lives there but Indians. So it's perfectly fine now because the French are gone. And so to the native people beyond this quote-unquote border, they start seeing a huge wave of illegal immigration coming across into their lands, and they don't know how to stop it. And then the other shoe drops. Because you see, at the start of this war, the British debt was about 74 million pounds. And by the end of the war, it was 122 million pounds. So when you have a massive debt like that, you got to find some way to pay for it. And what's the best way to pay off a debt, Caleb, if well, you're a government? Well, Andrew, there, there's two ways. One is you cut services, and uh, two is you raise taxes. But I remember clearly you telling me several episodes ago that this was free money. Yes, the British said that they all the monies that they need for these troops to be raised from the colonial militias will be totally reimbursed. And again, with the when the government tells you there's something is free, it's never free. And so the government slashes spending and raises your taxes. So for the colonies, they put in place some modest taxes to help offset the balance. But those issues are best left to another podcast because we're not talking about how the American Revolution started. Our focus is on what is going on with the Native Americans in the Northeast right now. But I'll give some spoilers. The people get pissed. And as for cutting expenses, well, they're going to piss off the colonists and the Native peoples at the same time. That's right, Andrew. Throughout hundreds of years of diplomacy with the Native Americans, it was always tradition uh, for the white people, but it wasn't simply tradition for the Indians. It was their way of life where... When you were meeting and you were making promises to each other for diplomacy, you would give gifts as a show of good faith. And we're going to see all of a sudden, those are going to be one of the first things on the cutting table to get rid of to save money. And it's not like they slowly tape it off. We recall that Jeffrey Amherst is the guy that gets credit for winning the war. And so he's commander in chief at the time. And so he looks at the ledger and says, well, you have this much money to spend now. And he says, well, we don't need to give anything to these uh, to these indigenous tribes because, well, one, the French are gone, so we don't need them anymore. And secondly, they're dependent on our welfare. And it would be best for them to get used to being self-sufficient. Yeah, he was kind of taking a bullying approach here. He, he never really seemed to care for constantly cowing to the natives. 
and constantly bribing them was the way he looked at it. And he has this quote that says it best what he was thinking. Quote, Purchasing the good behavior of either Indians or any other is what I do not understand. When men of what race soever behave ill, they must be punished, not bribed. So Caleb's already mentioned that the native peoples did not view this as bribery. They considered it part of the covenant chain that the natives would give gifts at these treaty conferences too, but the British would give gifts of medals, guns, and that was the big one. Not only did he cut off gift giving, but in all trade, he also cut off all gunpowder and lead supplies. Also, uh, we may have mentioned this in one of our past episodes, but at some point an English tradesman asked the Indians if they were allies, and they said, Yes, we're allies. We trade with you. They didn't look at it any different from trading with someone and being their allies. Therefore, if they accepted your gift, it was kind of without even writing a treaty and signing it, acknowledging that you are friends and allies. Now, let's kind of put this in a different perspective, because you guys at home may be thinking, well, yeah, that is the smart thing to do. We don't want these uh, native peoples to be dependent on welfare. We want them to strive and thrive, and they shouldn't be dependent on trade from other peoples. Well, let me ask you guys this. Where do you think all our stuff in modern-day America comes from? Where does the majority of our stuff get manufactured, Caleb? China. China. Now, imagine this. Let's say that tomorrow, China cuts off all trade with the United States. What do you think would happen to our economy and our way of life? And you could even put this in an even worse perspective. What if we had World War III and America was down at the lowest it's been in 300 years in population and financial stability, and then China says that it's cutting off all trade to the United States. We don't get any more iPhones. You, every year you get the new iPhone? No, you're not getting any more iPhones or Androids. Uh, shoes and clothing? Prices would soar. I mean, we still get things manufactured in other countries, but majority of it's still China. Prices soar out of control. Inflation would go. You've got things in your house. Your microwave breaks. Your toaster breaks down. You need to replace a light bulb. All of a sudden... You might not even be able to get these things imported. Or, again, the price is just going to be astronomical and out of reach of the average person. And with their old economy of fur, beaver furs, and all these furs for the other animals, by this point, so many of the populations have been so depleted that they couldn't even go back to their old ways of mass hunting and doing drives to make their own clothing again if they wanted to. So... Don't have it in the mindset that these people were inferior and helpless. We're pointing out that the people are in the same situation that we could possibly be in sometime in the future. And one more thing, if you can't get gunpowder or lead for your gun, how can you even go and shoot the remaining animals that are around in the hunting lands far away if you can't get gunpowder and lead to get the animals to trade for the things that you need? So these cutbacks affect everyone in the Six Nations and the Ohio country, and all the way to Michigan and the Mississippi Valley. And then, Andrew, to add insult to injury, once the French power has been driven out, the British have made all these agreements with the Ohio nations. The Ohio nations agreed to have the British come in and build trading posts along the rivers so that they can sell their furs and their goods and, and trade. But all of a sudden, they look out onto the river where there's supposed to be trading posts, and one day it's a trading post, and then the next day it has a wall around it, and then the next day it has towers around the walls, and then the next day it has cannons pointing out of each of the walls, and then the next day 15 settlers start clearing farms around it, and before you know it, every single one of these trading posts, which they wanted, 
to help their economy, all of a sudden it just becomes these mini fortified towns for British settlers to start moving into to increase their economy. At this time, Fort Pitt is already being referred to by the locals as Pittsburgh. So all this is going on, you're seeing encroachment by the British who aren't keeping their promises at all. Plagues of smallpox and other diseases are continuing to wreak havoc in your communities. New settlers are showing up every day. And this economic depression leads to more alcoholism that's already been going on. And it's just becoming worse and worse for them. And during times of hopelessness, sometimes people need something to hope in again. Because it's certainly not the British Empire. These people feel betrayed with the British government systematically pissing off everybody. And yet, General Amherst is totally oblivious to this and thinks that everything's fine. This is what happens when government gets too big. I, I look at this and I see Amherst being, com you know, he's sitting most likely up in Albany in New York, and he's making these rules and doesn't realize the effect that they're having. Meanwhile, in the real world, a lot of people are going to die because of a mixture of bad decisions from people that aren't actually there. I mean, we've talked about people that know what's going on, people like Sir William Johnson. I feel like maybe if they ask their opinion as opposed to just giving him some orders, because he's going to pop back into our narrative here in a little bit. So now we need to switch and talk about a certain person. We've already mentioned him before, but he's a man named Kayasuta. And Kayasuta was born around 1725 in Seneca Territory in western New York. You may or may not remember him from our first episode of the French and Indian War series. In 1753, he meets a young George Washington in Logstown while he's on his way to deliver a dispatch to the French at the Forks of the Ohio. Washington writes about him in his letters, and there he just refers to him as the hunter. Ironically, Kayasuta also calls Washington the tall hunter, because we know Washington was a tall guy. Even though he and Washington became friends initially at this meeting, Kayasuta, along with most of the other Ohio Mingo, side with the French and fight against Braddock's column in 1755. So he's most likely shooting bullets in Washington's direction just a couple years later. But now fast forward to where the French have been driven out in 1761, and with the French pushed out, Kayasuta's very uneasy with these redcoats. And he begins talking with other Mingo leaders in the Ohio area and conversing with different representatives from both distant and close-by tribes to gauge the possibility that maybe we could unite and drive the British out of these territories. You know, Andrew, as we've been reading and doing our research for this podcast, we've covered hundreds of years of Iroquois history. And this whole time, I've been saying to myself, why couldn't they just all unite, all the Indians versus all the white man? The more that I've read into it, I realize how difficult that would be, especially because they didn't look at themselves necessarily as being Indians. You know, they looked at themselves as being other nations, just like the people in Europe looked at each other as being di different nations. Yeah, when has all of Europe united against anything in its entire history? But we're going to see here that this is going to be the first time that there's going to be a serious attempt of many different Indian nations that might be thinking that it's time to try something like this. So, in 1761, William Johnson is invited to a large council fire outside of Fort Detroit. So, in September, he starts heading out, and we've talked about William Johnson at great length. He's the superintendent of all Indian affairs. Johnson is continuing to have a rising star in all of North America. He's a hero of the Seven Years' War, and he's taken a new wife, a Mohawk woman named Molly Brandt. His previous wife and consort had passed away. This has raised William Johnson's status 
greatly. Molly Brandt is going to be a leading clan mother, and her words are going to have much more weight than any other war chief in the area. And Molly has a little brother named Joseph, and we've mentioned him briefly before too, and Joseph Brandt is going to become a huge player in world history as we move forward. But when some of the Onondaga heard that Johnson was heading west, they kind of let him know their feelings. They said, why are you going all the way over there to meet with these western nations who fought against the British, and now you're trying to go curry favor with them? Maybe you should let the Six Nations take charge in trying to do these negotiations. And Johnson said, you know what? You guys are right. I would like you guys to come along with me, and we're going to try and build consensus because they're going to need to be our new allies, and we would like you guys to come. And so he actually went with an entourage of people from the Six Nations to this meeting. The minutes from the meeting show that Johnson really knew his stuff. He opens the gathering by following common protocol that's to be expected at this kind of symposium of delegates from dozens of nations. He holds out the wampum belt. And what's his opening statement, Caleb? Quote, It gives me great pleasure to see so many nations assembled here on my summons. I wipe away those tears from your eyes which were shed for your losses you sustained during the war in which you were imprudently engaged against the English, that you may discern your present interest and look with a cheerful and friendly countenance when you speak with or are spoken to by your brethren, the English. Now, General Amherst gives Johnson specific orders. Do not give any of these native peoples presence. What do you think Johnson did? Uh, Johnson, he... He kind of followed orders because he didn't take any government money to buy gifts, but he knew that this entire mission he was sent on would be completely worthless if he didn't give any gifts. So he actually took money out of his own pocket and purchased gifts for the leaders. And generous gifts, too. He really wanted to show that he was really looking out for everybody. And he knew what was expected. Now, later on in the evening, he talked about how he had heard of rumblings of resistance towards the British and how some people were even contemplating violence against them. A little later on in the meeting, an elderly Huron chief named Anasa stood up and spoke. He basically ratted out Kayasuta right there, and he literally pointed the finger right at him and told William Johnson that he's the one right there. He's the one that's turning up all the trouble. Yeah, Kayasuta, he walked around and he always talked like basically he spoke for all the Mingos and all the nations in the Ohio country. This Huron chief basically stood up and pointed out in front of everybody, you don't speak for us. Uh, and he kind of gets kowtowed and embarrassed and basically sits down and is quiet at that point. So all the plans for his attack fall apart and he leaves the conference with no support after that. He's fully embarrassed. In 1761, another thing begins happening in the Ohio country. There were talks of a prophet, namely a guy named Neolin who had a vision. So this guy Neolin was apparently fasting and trying to reach out to the great spirit. And then he said that the master of life appeared to him. And in his vision, he climbed atop a mountain. And this was what was said to him. I am he who has created the heavens and the earth, the trees, lakes, rivers, all men, and all you have seen upon the earth. Because I love you, you must do what I say and love, and do not do what I hate. 
The master told Neil Lynn that he was displeased with his people's addiction for alcohol. That was the big one. And also he despised polygamy, which I guess must have been happening amongst the Ohio, Shawnee, and Delaware people. And also sexual immorality, you know, that's having relations outside of marriage and having it with other people when you're still married. And witchcraft and people striving against one another. Hey, these, these complaints sound like I've heard them before. Yeah, they throughout a lot of different cultures. He also said that the people have lost their traditional ways and they should return to becoming self-sufficient. Instead of guns, they should relearn how to use bows and arrows. They should get rid of their cotton clothing and their wool clothing and they should dress themselves in animal skins. And again, the big one is you guys need to stop drinking booze. You know, Andrew, I, I read this great quote and I, I'm sorry, I don't have it in front of me, but... It was a quote from an Indian, and it, it went something like this. He said, when the white man came, we had plenty of food to eat and hunt. We had plenty of animals to skins for warm clothes. We had plenty of trees for firewood. We had large families. And when the white man came, we traded all our furs for scraps of clothing and knives. We traded all of our land for... Uh, muskets we traded all of our culture and all of our society and what do we have to show for it we've traded everything we have and all of the white people have everything now and our children will grow up and curse us as, and call us fools and your children will grow up and tell you how great and smart you were and it just comes back to what this prophet is saying. He's saying, you guys need to get back to that. You need to stop taking all of your natural resources and trading them away for a, for a metal knife. Even less than a metal knife, a, a swig of alcohol, which is a fleeting pleasure that's gone in the morning. So people began to equate their suffering as a result from generations of sinfulness. And when you're living in an economic depression, these kind of things start resonating with people. Neolin's teachings begin to spread, and he starts traveling to dozens of different villages and towns to impart his vision. Not just for his native Delaware people, but to all native nations on Turtle Island. Neolin's movement, I guess you could call it, even produced kind of like a holy document. It wasn't a book, but it was called the Great Book of Writing. But it was drawn on a stretched out deer hide, and it was kind of like this pictogram map that traced the route that a person's soul would need to take to find heaven. So there's all these different virtues and symbols there and vices, and it's showing people which the right pathway is to go towards a better life. Does it still exist, or do we just have a lot of people talking about seeing it? As far as I know, we only have people talking about what it looked like, but no actual images. Ah, that's too bad. So now the people that are starved of hope find a chance to climb out of their despair with this new faith. And one person that becomes a follower of Neil Lynn is this Ottawa guy named Pontiac. That's right, Andrew. Pontiac was born sometime in the 1720s, and uh, he's kind of interesting because in his younger years, he was most likely an ally of the French, and we're pretty sure that he was there fighting against Braddock at the start of the French and Indian War. We also have some pretty good evidence that he was at Fort William Henry when that was besieged, and also up in Quebec and Montreal for the fall of Canada. But by 1763, he's pretty through with these British people occupying the Midwest. And so Pontiac begins 
devising plans for an all-out attack to drive the British out of the garrison at Fort Detroit. Soon, Pontiac is sending his wampum war belts across the region, and on April 27, 1763, he's able to get enough people together to hold a council near the Detroit River. And at this meeting, he presents a lofty plan. We're going to attack Fort Detroit. If we're successful, all these other smaller frontier outposts in this area can be picked off one by one. But if we get the big one right away, by surprise, we're going to be in good shape. The thing is, Pontiac just needs the element of surprise. So he and his followers show up to Detroit under pretenses of trade and talk on May 1st. And what are they doing while they're there? Well, they're basically doing what George Washington was doing when he was there. They're looking around. They're there for official embassy business, you know, from uh, they're on a diplomatic mission from Alderaan. And while they're there on their diplomatic mission, they're sizing up the walls, checking to see how many people are guarding the front gate, checking to see how many people are guarding the back gate. Pontiac is head counting everyone he sees in a red coat while he's there. Because you got to remember, there's still a lot of French-Canadian people living in this fort, even though it's now British, and they're not really interested in them. They're just counting the redcoats, and he counts about 130 soldiers. So a week later, on May 7th, they come up with a plan. They're going to kind of do the uh, smuggling stuff into the movie theater style plan, Caleb. The snacks you buy at Walmart for a dollar so you don't have to pay the $5. And the you box. wear the long coat and the, with the puffy jacket. And, and get everything. your wife to hide some, some pops in her purse. Or pretend to be pregnant and hide a watermelon or something like that. <laughs> anyway, they're going to hide their weapons under their robes. And the plan is that once they're inside the fort, they would attack the unsuspecting garrison. There's just one problem. Allegedly, sometime before this, a young girl shows up to the fort to do some business. And she seems really sad. And a concerned person comes over to this native girl and begins to press her why she looks so gloomy. You know, is somebody sick? What's going on? They questioned her again and again. And she said that she was sad because she's not going to see any of them again. And they start like... <laughs> Um, is it because you're moving downriver to a new place? No. Is it, are you not feeling well? And after further inquiries, they learn the intended conspiracy. That's one version of the story anyway. Another account says that it was a native man that was friendly and tipped off the commandant. And another version says that it was an old woman. But it doesn't matter. Whoever it was, somebody snitched. And a few days later, when Pontiac came and entered the stockade with his 300-some men, the commander of the fort, Henry Gladwin, had all his soldiers there standing ready at formation inside with their muskets loaded over their shoulders. So, uh, so much for trying to catch them off guard. Pontiac proceeded to have a, a courteous but understandably awkward conversation with the garrison, and then they left. It's, again, both sides knowing that they know that each other knows. So Pontiac tries to have a meeting at the fort a few days later, and he shows up and finds the gate shut. So he starts shouting from the inside, and Pontiac says, Hey, um, we were just wondering if we could come in and have a meeting. And they say, uh, yeah, well, we can meet, but you need to come in by yourself. And Pontiac becomes very angry, and he departs. He realizes, oh, crap, we've lost the element of surprise. So he drops all pretenses of being diplomatic. And in the following hours and days, the gathered warriors 
start raiding the encampments and homes outside the fort. Remember, these settlements are starting to pop up outside the fort, so you have people that have built their, their shanties or their makeshift cabins here. And they just start raiding them. You know, all nine people are killed and others are captured. And soon, the fort is cut off from the outside world. But there's no reason to panic just yet if you're a British soldier, because throughout the hundreds of years that they have now been colonizing North America, we really don't have to worry about the Indians as long as we're in a fort, because they don't know anything about siege warfare. So as long as we stay safe in our fort, we can just wait for reinforcements and we'll be fine. But here's the problem. What did we, um, where did we mention that Pontiac was? He fought in the battle against Braddock. He fought at Fort William Henry. He fought at the fall of Canada. At Braddock, he learned, most likely, that you can wipe out white colonist soldiers if you catch them in a line when they... They can't stand in their lines and defend themselves. If you get them while they're all walking, stretched out over miles, they're vulnerable. And then at William Henry, he got to see how the French were able to simply surround them and just not let anybody out and starve them and get their morale down. And then in Canada, he was able to see how they were able to draw the French forces out of their fort to meet them on the Plains of Abraham. So he has seen three different techniques and how to fight. This modern warfare is completely changing at this point, and the Native Americans have adapted to it. But the British don't quite know that yet. But they're going to find out real soon. And what's going to make this remarkable is this is not going to be a short siege because we have seen some short sieges. Champlain had one when the... Five nations went to war against the Erie people. We saw a short siege. But this siege is going to go on for six months. And now that Fort Detroit is totally cut off, many of the native indigenous people who live around the British forts in the area begin to rise up as well. Gladwin is cut off, but he still knows that, okay, we're on some bodies of water. We can still sneak some people out. So he sends a letter to Jeffrey Amherst, and he says, quote, the enemy are masters of the country, and are likely to be so, if your excellency does not send a body of men to disperse them. Remember, Detroit at this time is hundreds of miles further to the west than Fort Pitt is. And we remember that what a huge undertaking that was for Braddock just to try and get to Fort Pitt. How can you possibly think that you can muster enough soldiers to get to Fort Detroit in any seizable amount of time? Now, Amherst, as this episode goes... You're going to learn to hate Amherst, trust me. If you think, oh, Amherst is just misunderstood, well, wait, we're going we're gonna to totally tear him down by the end of this. But Amherst writes back this simple response. Take no Indian prisoners. Love, General Amherst. He does send some support on the Detroit River by way of some ships, and these ships are too large to be attacked by Indian canoes. A few soldiers actually arrive and small bands of parties get to get out of the fort and are able to destroy a few buildings around the area so that Pontiac's forces can't use them for cover. But these extra bodies just kind of fill the fort and the siege isn't lifted. And so at news of Pontiac's success, this just begins continuing to spread. Meanwhile, back in New York, William Johnson is doing everything he can to make sure that this thing does not spread to the Six Nations because he realizes that, oh boy, is it going to be a real, real issue 
if the Iroquois join in. More or less his diplomacy works except for the Western Seneca, who again are an independent nation in the Confederacy, and each nation can choose what they do or do not want to do. And so we're going to see a large number of Seneca people joining in when Kayasuta sends out the war belts. And if you remember, Kayasuta is a Seneca. Now we're going to start discussing these several months where the British are just going to Man, they're going to be like the Cleveland Browns, defeat after defeat after defeat. Yeah, one problem was even though Detroit was on a river so they could get messengers and supplies out, a lot of these other forts were on smaller bodies of water. So since Pontiac attacked and besieged Detroit first, they weren't able to send out messengers to all these other Ohio forts. So even though he wasn't able to get a big surprise jump on Detroit, he most likely is going to be able to get it on a lot of these other forts. So let's start talking about some of these other forts. On May 16th, and this is all in 1763, so don't think that this is a huge span of time, Fort Sandusky in the Ohio country falls after a force of Ottawa and Wyandant. Those are remnant Hurons, if you remember those guys. They attack the fort, and these forts, again, Amherst just cut the budget, so a lot of these places are just small little stockaded lean-tos, and so the entire force of 15 men is killed. Its commander is taken prisoner and brought to Detroit. A few weeks a few weeks later, on May 25th, Fort St. Joseph, which is in Niles, Michigan, is attacked by Potawatomi warriors, led by Chief Washi. And this fort also falls. 12 of 15 people there are killed. And again, the commander and the rest are taken prisoner and brought to Detroit. Then we've got Fort Miami, Caleb, two days later. Yeah, Andrew, Miami fell after the attack by the Miami tribe. And the commander, Robert Holmes, and three of his men are killed. And the rest are taken away in ropes. Uh, the entire garrison surrenders. With the whole Midwest now ablaze, Guy Sunta finally has his rank swelling. Because people are seeing, hey, we can actually win this. Before, a lot of people are skeptical. Eh, this is just going to make things worse. A lot of people are getting their heads, hey, we can actually drive all the colonists completely out of the Ohio Territory, and then they're going to have to respect us, and we'll have a much better hand in the future for getting better trades and taking back the land that we've had in our families for generations. So the armies that he has, he's been desiring for the past two years, are now flocking to him, and he's going to set his sights on Fort Pitt. On May 28, 1763, Gai leads Delaware and Mingo warriors to Fort Pitt. So this, all this has been happening in the span of about a month and a half, which is hugely fast for the time. Now, Fort Pitt is very well defended, but we already mentioned how isolated it is. And Caleb, how many times have we talked about this thing changing hands over the past 10 years? Each time, it seems like it needs a large force to march on it from a long ways away to take it. And the British cannot send a relief force to this thing immediately. They have a road built now, which is Forbes Road. But again, there's a siege going on. And letters are able to be smuggled in and out. But on June 22nd, after weeks held up behind the walls, Fort Pitt has a three-pronged attack by Shawnee and Delaware and Mingo and the Seneca. And they finally decided, all right, got to open fire with our artillery to try and hold this off because they're just charging. And again, we've said that this does not happen. Native peoples did not charge forts. The initial attack is able to be held off and the people are repelled away. And so Kayasunta and the others think, all right, maybe we can find a diplomatic solution to end this siege and get some good terms and they'll respect us now. 
there's a, a famous chief named Turtleheart, and he comes out and speaks with officers outside the fort, informing them, hey, guys, we've taken this fort, this fort, this fort, this fort, and this fort. And Fort Pitt is the only one you have left in the whole Ohio country. And he said, we've got six different nations of Indians that are ready to attack if this garrison does not pack up and retreat east immediately. And the commander thanked Turtleheart, and he said that, well, don't worry, this fort can withstand all the nations of Indians. So they exchanged pleasantries. And then the commander, really great guy, Caleb, he also understood Native American culture and the fact of gift-giving at uh, negotiations. And so he had them go out and grab some gifts for them. Uh, two small blankets and a handkerchief, just a little token. But there's a little problem on where these gifts came from. Where did they come from, Caleb? Well, these came from the infirmary of the fort. There was a smallpox outbreak going on in the fort, and lots of the women and children were suffering from smallpox and they decided to take the blankets that the people were wrapped up in, that they had these pustuous pox leaking all over. They folded them up real nice. And this exchange will kind of go down in history because uh, they use this as a, basically to say that this is what the white people, this is what we're up against. This is how they fight their wars. And you can kind of see why they think that because Amherst himself even writes a letter to the fort and tells them, do anything you can to spread disease. And he lists it actually pretty much verbatim. This is his letter. Could it not be contrived to send the smallpox among those disaffected tribes of Indians? We must on this occasion use every strategium in our power to reduce them. And that's written May 4th, so just, just around the same time. And although there's no proof that it actually worked, and maybe it did, because, I mean, smallpox was ravaging them anyway. Yeah, the thing is, smallpox was always a problem, so it's hard to tell if it was particularly bad one summer more than another, because every year you were having outbreaks. But that's not the issue. The issue is there's no doubt that the intent and the hope was to spread this disease among a rival population. And this is not just affecting warriors, this is to affect their entire culture, men, women, children. And when historians were researching these events a generation or two later, they literally found the receipt invoices, Caleb. I've got a picture of it. It literally says, taken from smallpox infirmary, two blankets, one handkerchief, and it's got the person's name on it that gave it away as a receipt, you know, when they were doing their inventory stock. And Francis Parkman, uh, he was a, a renowned historian, and I've read some of his stuff, and a lot of his stuff is very biased against the Native peoples. But even he wrote, quote, The shameful plan of infecting Indians was detestable. So for that, Amherst and these other people, they deserve, in my opinion, far worse than just poor historical reputations. Meanwhile, back north, Lieutenant Abraham Collier and his men were heading from Fort Niagara to Fort Detroit to help reinforce it. And on their way, they stop at Point Pelee, which is in Ontario, to camp for the night. And the following day, they were planning on crossing Lake Erie, and they were going to deliver 139 barrels of provisions and all these reinforcements. But then they're ambushed by Wyandotte Hurons. Yeah, and more than half of them are killed, Andrew. And eight out of their ten boats are taken. The survivors barely escape on the remaining two boats, load the thing up so it's starting to sink. And uh, they flee to Fort Sandusky. But when they get there, 
they they just get it in sight and i don't know if they see like an indian flag waving up there on the fort or how they knew but they get there and they realize that the fort has already been captured so they've just barely made it there and then they got to turn directly around and they head for fort niagara so much for supplies coming to detroit now andrew we're talking about how fast all this is going on on the exact same day may 28 1763 a British settlement 10 miles southeast of Fort Pitt, uh, which is modern-day West Newton, Pennsylvania, is attacked by the Delaware and the Mingos, and it's led by the Delaware war chief, Wolf. And three days after that, Chief Wasson and his Chippewa, they're also called the Ojibwa, warriors on the Saginaw River arrive at Fort Detroit to reinforce. And so Wasson and Pontiac resolve that, okay, instead of tightening the siege... Let's focus on preventing any more British relief forces from reaching the fort. So now they've kind of got reconnaissance people going out in the area to make sure that there's no chance of people to help them out. The day after that, it just it just keeps going. It just gets worse and worse. Fort Autuian, which is five miles southwest of Lafayette, Indiana, falls without a shot. And this has different native tribes that we haven't even talked about before. The Wees, the Kickapoos, the Masasutans simply walk in and take the 20-man garrison prisoner. The Lieutenant Jenkins wisely chooses to surrender, and he and his men will be exchanged for enemy prisoners. So nobody there has any loss of life. And then the following day, we come to Fort Michilimackinac. And this is probably one of my favorite stories that I've heard in the whole history of North American warfare. It sounds like something in a in a novel or, you know, it sounds too good to be true. But it's it is. A, it's, like, it's almost like Trojan horse as far as, you know, how interesting and how unique it is. So the Chippewa, again, those are also called the Ojibwa people, and some Salt Warriors, they are not happy. In fact, many of them don't even know what's going on. They had heard rumblings, but they also were fed up and upset. Fort Michilimackinac is right at the tip between the two parts of Michigan. You've got the little mitten, as the Michiganders like to call it, and the very tip of that, where the straits flow into Lake Huron, and you've got the upper peninsula right there on that straight point. And the French had built a trading post there, and now the French had been forced to surrender it. Many of the French were still around, but it was under British garrison, and they were not happy. They wanted things to go back to the way that it was under the French, and they said, well, we're just going to kill all the British, and don't touch any of the French people. Let's just get rid of these British, and let's get things to our liking. It's a celebration day for King George. I believe it was his birthday. And the warriors and the different people in the communities got together and they said, we would like to honor the new king by playing a game that we all love as our tradition. And people call it different things, stick ball, but we know it today as lacrosse. It was very common when the Native Americans would play their games uh, everyone would gather around and watch and cheer just like a, a modern sporting event. You would cheer for warriors you knew and you would watch them. So all the, the British soldiers come out from inside the walls and gather around in a circle to watch this lacrosse game. But this entire thing was planned. Everyone felt pretty at home because the people playing lacrosse, they're just there, you know, in their loincloths or whatever. They don't have any weapons other than their sticks and the ball. But as they're watching... All the women are kind of gathering by the gate to the fort to cheer their husbands and sons on. All they're wearing long dresses. But they take no notice of it whatsoever. Yeah, it's just the women walking towards the fort. Nobody pays any attention to it. But they had it predetermined. You know, I don't know if it was halftime or, you know, at the end of the third quarter, they had 
a plan where we'll throw the ball on the roof and get it stuck in old man Cotter's uh, gutter, and that'll be the sign. So basically that's what they did. They said, okay, at some point in the game, I'm going to whip the ball to you, but I'll accidentally throw it a little too high, and it'll go over the wall to the fort. And the second that happens, everyone knows to run for the gate. And as that happens, they all sprint for the gate, and everybody's just kind of standing there, not paying attention. They're like, oh, they're going to get the ball. They're all running into the fort, whooping, getting for the ball. And then the women rip off their clothes, lift up their blankets, and throw weapons to the, the men as they're running in. Tomahawk here, tomahawk there, rifle. club here, rifle. And now this entire lacrosse team has just been armed in a matter of seconds. Even the soldiers that are there that have their guns, they haven't primed it. They haven't put flints on it or anything. Within a matter of a minute, they have killed and captured the entire fort. They killed 21 of the 35 men garrisoned there. Some of the French people actually hide some of the British people to prevent them from being killed. But it doesn't matter. They take the fort. And they, they actually spared all the French people. Yes, At least every, as many as they could tell were French. Well, they knew because they had been living in this community for a long time, so the French were many of their friends. And they actually knew every house that was a French house. They did capture the captain, Etherton, and his deputy, LaSalle. And the Ottawa war chief takes the surviving prisoners to Montreal for a prisoner exchange. So all in all, very good. And again, on the same day, Fort Legionnaire in Pennsylvania is attacked by the Shawnee Delaware Mingo Warriors. This one attack is actually unsuccessful. There's no casualties on any side. We're probably done now, right, Caleb? <laughs> Maybe we should have like a spreadsheet we can just post. Okay, this day that this fort fell, this day this fort fell. Because people are going to be forgetting all these forts because uh, they've fallen so quickly. We don't even have time to, to remember anything about yeah. them. So a week after this, uh, Chief Skekehos and his other Chippewa warriors come from the Thames River that's in uh, southern Canada, and they arrive at Detroit. And so by now, Pontiac has more than 850 warriors. He's got 250 Ottawa, 150 Potawatomi, 50 Huron, 250 Saginaw Ojibwa, and 170 Tams River Chippewa. And how many, what would we say, 130 people are inside Fort Detroit that well, are soldiers? a few people got in, remember. Yeah, so, but so, there's most likely 200 people there at the most at this time. The British, what they ended up doing is they're actually arming the French civilians that are there, saying, you're now part of the militia. Welcome aboard. Following week, June 16th, Fort Venango, which is in modern-day Franklin, Pennsylvania, falls. This is where some Seneca people attack and kill the whole 15-man garrison and burn the thing to the ground. Well, they don't kill everyone at first. Uh, the lieutenant commander, Francis Gordon, is there, and they keep him alive long enough to write a letter stating their grievances so that they could have something written in English, and then they promptly uh, burn him alive. <laughs> we got to be done by now, Caleb. Nope. <laughs> June 18th, Fort Leboeuf. We've talked about this fort before in the past. Uh, that's modern-day Waterford, Pennsylvania. It falls after another attack from Seneca warriors. Two men are killed. The fort is destroyed. The survivors, including the commander, George Price, they actually escape to Fort Venango. Seeing that Fort Venango has been taken as well, they decide to move to Fort Pitt. Please, oh, please, oh, please let Fort Pitt be there when we get there. <laughs> yeah, on the same day, a Jesuit missionary comes with some Ottawa people, and they arrive at Fort Detroit, and they bring Pontiac more good news, saying, hey, oh, by the way, uh, we captured Fort Bachilla-McNamara a few weeks ago. 
The following day, <laughs> June 19th, there's a siege at Fort Prestique Isle, which is in Erie, Pennsylvania. And this is a huge siege again. 250 Ottawa and Chippewa and Huron and Seneca people lay siege. And after three days, they captured the 60-man garrison. And they three men are killed, and the rest are taken prisoner to Fort Detroit again, probably to get concessions for trade. And they destroy the fort. Meanwhile, way out in Green Bay, Wisconsin, which is just at the edge of the end of the world, uh, the fort commander, a guy named Goral, receives a message that says, every fort between here and Fort Pitt is either under siege or been destroyed. And Wisconsin is just hundreds of miles even away from Fort Detroit. So they said, dude, don't even try holding out. Get on boats right now and leave. Just abandon the place. And they do. So let's head back to... Fort Detroit and see what's going on because it seems like so far the British just can't do anything right. They're just totally caught with their pants down. Now back up at Fort Detroit there was an officer we didn't mention before a guy named Captain Donald Campbell and he was a big fat guy and I don't mean like he was overweight. It's weird because you don't really think of overweight people back then because there wasn't a lot of food or a lot of money to get overweight but this guy was a freaking landman. And this is like the frontier. This is like Fort Detroit. It's not like there's a McDonald's in town. On top of this guy being morbidly obese, he's legally blind, and he can't walk very well. It's just, you picture a guy being uh, in charge of a frontier fort, and this is the last guy that you picture there. But he was actually kind of a man of some competence. He actually spoke fluent French, English, and he actually had a good reputation amongst the Indians. He was known for treating them very fairly, always making sure they got good trade deals and things like that, and everybody kind of liked him. And he was actually a good, I almost want to call him a friend of Pontiac. I guess that because we're going to see what happens here, we'll we'll move him down to maybe good acquaintance. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I don't know what you think of good friends. As the fort is under siege, Donald Campbell, he agrees to go out, and he's going to go and talk to Pontiac. He's going to go out, as he's going to carry some dispatches from Amherst, and he's going to see if he can talk to his old buddy Pontiac and talk some sense to him and uh, come up with some sort of peace. So he grabs his lieutenant, and they agree to go out under a flag of truce, and they meet with Pontiac. And at which point Pontiac, uh, he welcomes them, he sits them down, he says, thank you for delivering the letter. Campbell tries to get up, the, uh, this lieutenant hops up, and they go to leave, and he says, you guys are going to stay here as my guests. Uh, excuse me, was kind of the response. We're, we're leaving, we've given the message. No, you don't understand, you're, you're staying as my guests. So they realize that even though they came as messengers under a flag of truce, they are prisoners. And this is going to raise some big issues because it seems like throughout all civilizations, we kind of have this rule, you don't shoot the messenger. Because if you start imprisoning messengers, what happens when you need to send a messenger? It's just one of these things that it seems like for the past thousands of years, it's just been expected. If somebody sends you a messenger, you treat them kindly and you send them back. We saw many times in our episodes talking about, I think of the example with the Erie, with the, the Seneca back in one of our early episodes, I think Romans of the New World, where the Erie came as messengers and they ended up killing uh, some Seneca people in a village and it sparked a whole war because of diplomacy norms not being followed. Several days into them being imprisoned, Campbell tells his lieutenant, he says, Hey, bud, you're a lot thinner than me, and you can see it's probably our duty to try and escape, but 
Uh, let's be honest, I can't escape these guys, but you can. So I'll make a diversion and you try and escape. And uh, he does, and the lieutenant actually makes it safely back to Fort Detroit. And the following day, we kind of get some bad news for Campbell. He's kind of one of the, the colonial leaders that I feel bad for in this, because he did have a reputation for being a decent guy, and he obviously was brave if he was willing to go out there. So on July 4th, 1763, Pontiac gets a message from the Ojibwa chief Wasson. And he is telling him in his message how sad he is that his nephew was just killed. And he says, why don't you send me that British officer you've captured to make my heart feel better? And Pontiac, he's kind of caught in this sticky situation because he didn't want to let Campbell go back because he realized what a good uh, bargaining chip he would be. But he didn't want to have him tortured to death. He was kind of an acquaintance of his and that really doesn't help the situation but this, this chief has over 300 warriors, and we're saying that they've got about 900 warriors. This is a very influential chief. So Pontiac's kind of caught between a rock and a hard place. We've been out here sieging for months. I can't risk losing a third of the men here because of Campbell. So he sends Campbell off in chains to this chief, and at which point he tomahawks him, disembowels him, cuts him into pieces, and throws him into the river so that his body parts will float down the river and people inside the fort can see them floating by. So this kind of enrages the British. And in effect, Pontiac's men have just killed a British envoy sent to negotiate peace. And so when Amherst finds about, out about this, we've already mentioned what a jerk Amherst is, uh, he fumes and he puts a price tag on Pontiac's head of a hundred pounds. And that, you got to remember, 100 pounds, that's 100 pounds sterling. So 100 pounds of silver. How much would that be worth today? Pontiac sends a, a message back to Gladwin saying, you know, it would be best for you guys to surrender because we've got another Chippewa chief coming with a force of 800 men. And, you know, I really can't promise your safety because this is a huge addition to my force and I can't promise what these people are going to do. They're not going to listen to me, so... Would you guys please surrender? To which he said, no. A few days later, on July 6th, the Ottawa try to set fire to the British ships that are docked at Fort Detroit by setting rafts on fire and trying to push them downstream. It's pretty unsuccessful, and the idea was soon abandoned. And so now this thing's dragging into mid-July. They finally agree to a prisoner exchange, where some Wyandotte and Potawatomi people that Henry Gladwin has will be pardoned and switched out with some of the British people. But some of the natives try to withhold some of the British captives. They try to give them some, but not all. And Gladwin says, no, I want them all. And so the thing falls through and everybody gets nobody. But things start to look up because on July 29th, a relief force of 260 troops led by Captain John Dial. He's this guy's General Amherst's right-hand man. And then they got another 20 independent rangers led by Robert Rogers. And we didn't talk about him much, but Robert's rangers were like huge during the French and Indian War with scouting assignments. And they arrive at Fort Detroit with provisions and ammunition. So they send this letter back to Amherst on what their plans are. So on the 31st, Captain Dial requested as a particular favor that I would give him command of a party in order to attempt a surprisal of Pontiac's camp under the cover of night. To which I answered, 
that I was of the opinion that Pontiac would be too much on his guard. He then said that he thought if I did not attempt it now, he would run off and I should never have an opportunity. This induced me to give in to the scheme, contrary to my judgment. So let me paraphrase that. This newly arrived captain says, I think we should do a surprise attack on Pontiac's camp. And the guy says, it won't work. Pontiac will know what's up. It, it just won't end well. And the guy said, it's now or never, man. If Pontiac flees, you're never going to catch him. Uh, I don't know about you, Andrew, but trying to surprise Indian warriors in the woods just doesn't sound like a good idea. Well, it's a bold strategy, Caleb. Let's see how it plays out. So on July 31st, the Battle of Bloody Run commences. Why is it called the Battle of Bloody Run, Andrew? Well, uh, at 2.30 in the morning, Dale is getting 247 troops to put boots on the road and march down from Fort Detroit to attack Pontiac's camp. So he's trying the night attack. But when they get close, there's a bridge there at um, Parents Creek. They're ambushed on three sides by Pontiac's men. Uh, again, all different forces, Ottawa, Chippewa, Wyandotte, figure out, well, how did they know? Well, some friendly Frenchmen actually went to Pontiac and tipped him off. And so the British suffer 150 casualties, including Dale, and some are taken prisoner, and the whole rest retreat wounded to the fort. So this is 150 out of 247. So that's a huge number. <laughs> and they, they didn't do anything to lift the siege. They just come back more disgusted. We're going to step away from Fort Detroit again because we got to head back down to Fort Pitt to see what the heck's going on with that siege. In the beginning of August, the British have finally gotten their act together and they're sending a relief force of 500 men. 300 of them are British royal officers. And then you've also got a Highland regiment known as the Black Watch. You think that uh, Mr. Martin got his Game of Thrones name just out of whole cloth? No. This is where the name comes from. This is an elite force of northern fighters. And they're Scottish Highlanders. And the reason that they're going to prove very useful is Scottish Highlanders are used to fighting in wooded, hilly areas, which is exactly where this kind of fighting is happening. And hand-to-hand combat. They're marching through Pennsylvania on Forbes Road. They reach Fort Legionnaire, and they rest there for a few days, and they're transferring a bunch of uh, provisions of flour and things from wagons that they're going to take to Fort Pitt. But then, at the same time, the natives that are at Fort Pitt realize that there's a relief force coming, so they break off the siege to try and meet this relief column before it gets there, because if they can destroy that, then they can go back to besieging Fort Pitt. But if this column arrives, then the gig is up. So 30 miles southeast of Fort Pitt, a very stealthily camouflaged group. Again, this is very diverse. We've got Delaware, Shawnee, Mingo, Wyandotte, led by Kayasuta, who we mentioned before is the Seneca war chief living in Mingo country. And they launch a frontal attack on the advanced guard. The ambush totally works. Just like Braddock's, they lay into the side. The British people are standing there. They're getting picked off one by one. The commander actually comes up with a very ingenious idea. They have all these carts with sacks of flour, and so they build a, uh, a stockade out of sacks of flour surrounded in a ring and stack it up and hide everybody inside it. I'll have to take a sack of flour to the shooting range next time and see if it can really stop a bullet. Uh, one of those huge, massive 50 to 100-pound bags of uh, flour. I'm sure if you got several of them stacked up, it would do the job. But uh, the British take huge casualties, 
And so the first day of fighting is really won by uh, Kayasuta. The following day, however, the colonel defeats the indigenous alliance thanks to a surprise strategy. What he does is he has two British companies go forward, and then as soon as they start taking fire, they do a fake withdrawal. Again, you know, they're thinking, oh, we got them on the run. And what happens is some of them actually drop their guns and grab their tomahawks and knives thinking that they can start scalping people. And once the men run to cover, the British lay in a crossfire, and it forces the natives to withdraw, thereby ending the battle. But the British still have 110 casualties, 50 killed and 60 wounded. And we mentioned there's 500 people coming, so 1 in 10 were killed. It's pretty huge numbers. Now, Andrew, I would say that this campaign to drive out the English is going pretty well at this point. They've basically taken something like 90% of the forts in the Ohio country. And the Great Lakes region. And the Great Lakes region. They've killed far more than they have been killed. But I kind of see a little bit of a flaw here in the plan. And that's, okay, you drive the English out, but the English are the only people there. At some point, you're going to run out of guns and powder and the British probably aren't going to trade it with you anymore. So I feel like uh, this is kind of doomed to fail. Well, the issue was that they actually had hopes and faint promises that the French were getting ready to retake North America. That's right. And not only the French, but they're hearing all these rumors from down southern Louisiana territory where there's even still some uh, Spanish influence in Florida and things like that. So they're thinking okay, we can drive the British back, then we can get the French trading post back here, and then we we don't have this one-on-one relationship anymore. We can get some competition to get the prices back up for trades. But what they don't realize is the French are never coming back. The King of France is officially pulling up ties and sending word to pull anybody that wants to come back to Europe, come back. Otherwise, you're going to be subjects to the King of England. While this is going on, they are literally in Paris working out deals for this peace treaty. But they have no idea that this is going on. So in actuality, we've hit the high watermark of this. Historians call this a rebellion or an insurgency. I don't view it as that because to have a rebellion, you need to be officially under somebody recognized to rebel they're not rebelling they're driving off an invasion they've never sworn allegiance to the the british king and made him their king and it's not an insurgency it's not like they're occupied there's forts here but the people are not living under occupation yet they're trying to prevent that so i view this as a counterattack to an invasion but a lot of times you hear this is pontiac's rebellion this is pontiac's insurgency it's the indian insurgency of 1763 i just call it pontiac and Cayasuta's war because i think that more accurately describes it but we're going to start seeing the end of this one of the things that really happens is there's major pierre joseph nilan villers and he decides to encourage the indigenous people to become more peaceful with the british and he writes this letter addressed to all the nations, and he says, My dear children, the great day has come. The master of life has inspired the great king of France and him of the English to make peace between the two of them. Sorry to see the blood of men spilt so long. What joy you will have in seeing the French and English smoking with the same pipe and eating out of the same spoon, and finally living like brethren. Leave them off, my dear children, from the spilling of blood of your brethren, the English. Our hearts are now but one, 
You cannot at present strike the one without having the other your enemy also. By the way, Caleb, what the heck is a Frenchman still doing commanding a fort writing this letter? Well, I'll answer the question. This was like the last fort that the British hadn't gotten to yet to uh, officially take it over. But this guy's still in charge, and he says, Guys, we're not coming back. I don't know who told you this, but it's it's not going to help. So with the siege of Fort Pitt finally broken off, we got to go back to Detroit. And now we're in September, and this thing's still going on. And we got to see what what's going to happen. They got to wind this up quick because it's going to start getting cold soon. Pontiac hasn't gotten the message that Kayasunta's battle's over. Pontiac says, "Nope, we're going to keep going." And so Amherst is just—if this was a movie, you would just see the progression of Amherst get angrier and angrier. And so here's a letter he writes back to Henry Gladwin, who's still holed up at Fort Detroit. You want to do a, a really uppity British accent for this, Caleb? <clears throat> By a formal letter, I have offered a reward of a hundred pounds to the person who should kill Pontiac. If you think another hundred could be induced for a darling fellow to attempt the death of this villain, I would add it with pleasure. Very good. Thank you. So Amherst wants him dead, 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 dead. He'll double the reward. <laughs> it didn't work. <laughs> So, on September 14th, we have the Battle of Devil's Hole. Near Fort Niagara, what happens is the British get a wagon train rolling, and they're going to go along the Portage Trail along the Niagara Gorge, and they're going to try and get supplies going to Fort Detroit. But the Seneca show up, and they totally unload it for them. So just when the convoy's approaching the creek flowing into Devil's Hole, the Seneca attack And to add insult to injury, Andrew, they can't take everything with them. You know, all these wagons and and, uh, draft animals and stuff like that. They don't have time to walk all those all the way back. So they're just going to throw them all over the gorge into the Niagara Niagara River. River. So there are some British that are near the lower landing by the Portage Road, and they are alarmed by gunfire. And when they come down to rush to the convoy's aid, they're ambushed as well. And so the troops that are there on their way to Detroit are, uh, 80 of them are killed. Guess how many make it back to Fort Niagara? Not very many. Well, I've got here in my notes, eight. This was actually the bloodiest battle of Pontiac's War. And it's going to be weeks before the British will even be able to again get anything to Fort Detroit. And again, Fort Niagara starts sweating bullets because they're like, well, are we next? Are the Seneca going to attack us now? Although the Seneca are, are wise, they're like, we know we can't possibly attack Fort Niagara. It's a stone castle. But we can definitely uh, throw cattle over cliffs. So put another pin in Fort Detroit. We'll be back to it in a bit. Way back over across the pond in England, good old jolly King George III makes the proclamation of 1763. And this is actually quite an interesting decree, for it says right in it that it acknowledges that great frauds and abuses have been committed in purchasing lands from the Indians. And here's another excerpt. Caleb, could you have a very royal-speaking British accent for this one? And we do further declare, for to be our royal will and pleasure, for the present and a foreseen to reserve under our sovereignty a protection in our dominion for the use of the said Indians. All the lands and territories not included within the limits of our said three new governments 
or within the limits of the territory granted to the Hudson Bay Company, as also all the lands and territories lying to westward and the sources of the rivers which fall into the sea from the west and the northwest as aforesaid. That's British legalese for saying all the lands that the rivers flow to the east will be for the British colonies, and all rivers, which is the Ohio, that flow into the Mississippi are going to be protected as a reserve for indigenous peoples. And it further goes on to say that from now on, all the way down in the Gulf of Mexico, this is for them only. And British companies that have a claim to this area, I've just voided all those contracts. And anybody that's already settled there beyond this borderline need to remove themselves. And if you don't, and something happens to you, we warned you. You guys need to get out. And now, only the British government will negotiate land sales. They didn't say that nobody could ever settle there again, but they said that the British government will conduct the negotiations because they don't want any of this sneaky stuff going on between different colonies all doing different deals and different land companies doing it as well. Do you think the settlers uh, followed this from a king living 3,000 miles away? Uh, probably not. No. It'd be pretty tough to enforce, and we see that throughout basically every generation. You have the the colonial governments trying to control things. You Then you have, on top of them, the British government trying to control things, when in reality it's just whoever can control something will do it, and everybody else can talk. Pontiac is still at Fort Detroit, and we're looking at Halloween now. He's gotten a letter from the French saying that we've cut ties. There's no chance that they're coming back. And Pontiac realizes that, all right, winter's coming. Folks need to get back home. People have come from a long way. In the Native American life, they still had like a war time and they had a hunting time. So they've just spent the entire summer laying siege to this fort. But if there's nobody going out hunting, how are they going to eat for the winter? And we're pretty, I mean, October 31st, we're pretty far into the hunting season right now already. Rut is starting right then and there. And these people got to walk home. So he's stayed there as long as he could. For those of you that don't hunt, rut is what we call the whitetail mating season. Yes, sorry. (laughs) Oh, and for those of you that also don't hunt, whitetail, we're referring to deer. So Pontiac lifts the siege and he writes to Gladwin, My brother... The word that my father has sent to make peace I accept. All my young men have buried their hatchets. I think Jan will forget the bad things that have happened for this past while. For my part, I shall forget. I, the Ojibwas, Hurons, we must go to speak with you when you ask us. Reply to us. I'm sending you the advisor so that you may see him. If you are indeed like me, you will give me a reply. I send you greetings. Pontiac's just like, uh, we're all good now, man. Uh, I'm really sorry that it came to that these last six months, but uh, I'm still your friend, really, deep down inside. Gladwin replies that he would forward Pontiac's message to General Amherst, and they go home. Some of the consequences of this, Caleb, is now we're starting to see in the colonists that people are starting to have a real racial hatred for Native Americans. And they're lumping them all into categories now. They've seen the French and Indian War, and now they've seen this war with Pontiac and Cayasuta, and people start saying the only good Indian is a dead Indian. 
Well, you got to remember, during the French and Indian War, you kind of had your good Indians and you had your bad Indians because you had half of them fighting with the British. But now that the French are gone, all they see is the bad from the Indians because all they're hearing about is the battles. They're not seeing the Indians fight on their side. And that's kind of drawn up. Plus, you're starting to see propaganda. You hear about things because propaganda was just as big back then as it is today. This Captain Campbell being sent out under a white flag with... A noble blue hint to his eye stood proud as the savages cut him and ate his heart and threw his bones into the river. They would play stuff like that to the full extent. And now everybody is not only hating the Indians, but they're fearing the Indians. And all of them. So the following month in December, we have the Conestoga Massacre. And what happens is there's this group of good-for-nothing scum guys called the Paxton Boys. They weren't boys. These were men. And near Lancaster, Pennsylvania, they got whipped into a frenzy and said, we need to kill some of these Indians. We, we need to get rid of them. They just had a meeting and got drunk and said, all right, well, let's find a town and let's go to it. If you remember back to some of our earlier episodes, Conestoga is on the Susquehannock River. This is a community of assimilated Susquehannocks that have been absorbed into the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. And they are props. And other different members of the Five Nations have come down and intermarried with them. And so they're a full part of the community. And they go into this small town, which is just outside a white settlement town. And they slaughter, literally slaughter, 20 peaceful, defenseless Conestoga indigenous people. And these are not even warriors. These are old men, women, children. And they don't just kill them. They actually scalp them and mutilate their bodies. And some of them aren't even all home. And so the people in Lancaster put them under house arrest in their town to protect them from this mob. And the mob comes into town and raids the place where they're being uh, protected and kills all of the surviving members there. And the people in Lancaster are absolutely appalled at this because they knew these people. They were their friends. They knew that they would never harm a fly. I'm probably going to talk about this more, but Ben Franklin is mad as anything. And he writes a massive retort in the in the papers. How is it that because some native people out west are doing this, that you would attack these people here in Pennsylvania? And he he throws out that he says, if somebody killed my wife that was a redhead and had freckles, does that mean that every time I see somebody that's a redhead with freckles, I could kill them for avenging my family? He said, these are different nations, and he literally uses that term and says, it, it would be that kind of thinking that thinks that all of these people should be killed. Just because there's some bad eggs out there does not mean that this should happen. And Franklin is actually able to negotiate with this Paxton rabble and get them to leave because they actually march on Philadelphia to try and attack there. But once they leave, Franklin lets his feelings be known in the paper. So in July 1765, a guy named Colonel George Krogan comes to the scene. And he's actually been here throughout all this. He was actually Johnson's uh, right-hand man. He was the deputy supervisor for Native American Affairs. And he was a really interesting guy. And I wish we had more time we could talk about him because he could have a whole episode just about him. But we're trying to, to stay focused here. So he's meeting with Pontiac and they come to an agreement to end the uprising. And they sign a statement. And in that statement, Pontiac points something out to Krogan. He says, the French have submitted to you their land, but that has nothing to do with us. This is our land. Just because the French say that 
they are going to cede you the Ohio country. The French never owned the Ohio country. So you can make whatever agreements you want with the French, but that has nothing to do with us. You guys conquered the French, so you have that right over them. But you have not conquered us. We are having a truce right now. The British should not assume that we are going to submit like the French. So over the next few months and years, there's more treaties and councils to try and hammer this out. Krogan and Pontiac meet with Ottawa, Ojibwa, and Huron, and Potawatomi people to try and ratify this agreement. Some people agree, but not everyone is convinced that they want to totally uh, bury the hatchet yet. The following year, in July of 1766, Algonquin chiefs and Pontiac meet at Fort Ontario. So we're, we're all the way back into Onondaga and Oneida country at Fort Oswego to sign a final peace treaty. Sir William Johnson, of course, is there to preside, and he lets Pontiac speak for everybody, which uh, kind of infuriates all the native peoples there because, again, this is called Pontiac's War, but it's not really Pontiac's War. This is what some people call a pan-Indian uprising. Again, I don't like that term. It's a bunch of independent indigenous nations all getting pissed off for the same reason and doing the same thing at the same time, sometimes in concert and sometimes totally disconnected to what everything else is going on. And Pontiac has now gained this reputation among the indigenous people saying that, dude, you just sold out to the British. You were the one leading us against him and now you totally came and are playing to their tune. And some people started accusing him that the British were actually putting... Pontiac on their payroll. That's doubtful, but the rumors started spreading. It's so bad that when Pontiac gets home and his people question him about it, he says, no, we need to stick to the treaty with the British. His village excommunicates him and they exile him out. And there's still skirmishes here or there, but Pontiac literally has buried his hatchet. He stays true to his word. He says he's done fighting and he's going to take up the uh, honest reputation as a fur trader. Three years later, in 1769, Pontiac moves further south to Cahokia, Illinois. Probably hoping nobody will recognize him out there. But what happens a month later, Caleb? Well, somebody did recognize him. We don't know who. We, uh, they say that it was a Native American from some tribe. Pontiac was visiting a trading post slash fort, and out of the blue... Somebody ran up with a tomahawk and bashed him in the head. There's been some rumors and conspiracies that perhaps that 200-pound bounty that Amherst put on years ago finally caught up to him. The British at some point paid to have him killed. Um, and then there's also just rumors that uh, he made a lot of his own enemies. I mean, he was excommunicated from his own village, like Andrew said. There was... A lot of people that would probably, if they saw him, they would take a chance at killing him. So between fighting... Throughout the entire French and Indian War, from Braddock to Fort William Henry to the fall of Canada, and then having a whole nother war named after him, Pontiac's life came to an end in 1769. And the commander of the fort that he was at ordered him buried, and nobody knows where he was buried to this day. But I guess we got to go back and say, but wait a second, you guys talked about two main guys that were heavily influential in this war, and... What happens to Kayasuta? It's actually going to take us about 10 more episodes to tell us what's going to happen to Kayasuta because he's going to live for a long time and Kayasuta is going to be active in the American Revolution and beyond. So fast forward again, it's 1770 in October. This rebellion is finally petered out. 
and were actually gearing up for the American Revolution. And George Washington has retired, but he's back in Ohio country because he was promised some acreage for being a war veteran. And so he's, you know, King George has written this thing saying nobody's supposed to settle here, but Washington's still seeing maybe I can get some land in the Ohio country. Let me go look and see if it's possible. And so when he's traveling through, he stops over one October evening and he meets up with a group of Mingo Iroquois. And he writes this in his journal. While I was there, we found Kayasuta and his hunting party encamped. And here, out of a necessity of paying our compliments, I came to realize that he was a person of the Six Nation Chiefs. I had found an old acquaintance, he being one of the Indians that went with me to the French in 1753. He expressed a satisfaction in seeing me and treated us with great kindness, giving us a quarter of very fine buffalo, he insisted upon our spending that night with him, and in order to retard us as little as possible, moved his camp downriver about three miles. At this point, we all encamped, and after much counseling overnight, they all came to my fire the next morning. With great formality, when Kayasunta heard that we were passing over, he thanked me. So, if you go to Pittsburgh, I think we may have mentioned this before, that there's a statue on Mount Washington with George Washington sitting crouching, holding Kayasunta's hand. And we're going to see that they're going to have correspondence for many years to come. These guys are roughly the same age. They're both tall hunters. And it is interesting because, again, Kayasunta was also chose to side with the French in the French and Indian War and was shooting at Washington's columns. He was also involved in this uprising. But he and Washington still had this relationship that would last their whole life. Yeah, they went from being friends at the beginning of the war to being enemies and then back to being friends. And, and we're going to see that they're going to become enemies again and friends again. So it, it really is interesting. So there's going to be a lot more about Kayasunta in the future. So thank you so much for joining us, everybody. We really appreciate it. Coming up soon, as Andrew hinted, we're getting real close to kicking off the American Revolution. Uh, we have uh, uh, some other special bonus episodes that we're, that are currently in the process of being made. And we've got a lot of announcements to come in. As always, folks, check us out on Facebook. You just search Iroquois History and Legends. Check out our website, longhousepodcast.com, Twitter, at Iroquois History. And we'd like to welcome some new members into the Wild Sweet Potato Clan. That's right. We actually have a very unique wild sweet potato. We have an Australian sweet potato. And here's Caleb to read his review. Crikey, really enjoying your podcast. I came upon it while I was looking for something on Australian Aboriginal people. Very interesting. And bloody blood mate, I added it to my subscribe list. Crikey. And he's going to be unsubscribing from us now based on that horrible accent. Accent? What are you talking about? I was raised in Australia. Uh-huh. So that was Rob C. from Oz. We'd also like to thank B. Tyler, Jake the Archer, Malkley of Madison, Wisconsin, Ranger Winnie, Aranda Coitness, and On the Lagoon. Thanks, everybody. Nice to welcome you all to the Wild Sweet Potato Clan. If you have any other questions or comments, feel free to message us on Facebook. Or if you would like to join the clan, please leave us an iTunes review. We charge nothing for the show, but we do ask for a review. It's all we ask for our hundreds of hours of sitting in this hot bar recording an episode once every couple weeks. That actually doesn't make it sound as hard as it is. It's actually harder than it sounds. Goodbye, everyone. Bye, everybody.
In the shadowed recesses of our world, monsters lurk. Despite our reluctance to find them, an unlucky few cross paths. It's these experiences that we explore at Monsters Among Us podcast. My name is Derek Hayes. Each week, I explore calls from around the world detailing chilling encounters with mystery beasts, ghosts, UFOs, and a plethora of other strange happenings. You can find Monsters Among Us podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and most other podcatchers.